This episode is sponsored by Gorichka Clothing. That's K-U-R-O-C-H-K-A. Gorichka Clothing makes t-shirts, tote bags, and other cool things inspired by Russian and Ukrainian culture, pre-Putin, of course. They're also currently working on a cookbook that will be filled with Russian recipes, food-related history, literature, and beautiful illustrations. I'm looking at the shirts right now, and they're awesome. They've got one that's got all sorts of drawings of what goes into a borscht soup and a big pot of the stuff at the bottom. You should check it out. Go to gorichkaclothing.com. That's K-U-R-O-C-H-K-A clothing.com. Or check them out on Facebook at facebook.com slash gorichkaclothing. K-U-R-O-C-H-K-A clothing. Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is Jenna Ipkar. Hello. And our special guest, Rick Harper. Hi. Thanks. Happy to be here. Rick Harper is the producer and director of... Room Full of Spoons, the documentary about the infamous movie, The Room. And he's here today from Canada. That's right. And here from Ottawa, Canada. Yeah. And the movie isn't out yet. He's still making it. Seems like it's going to be a really good one. You know, it's not one of those cash in projects. It's really kind of a companion piece to the room where if you like the movie, uh, you'll see a lot of interviews with damn near everybody that's in it. So, how did this get started? You've been doing this for like three years now? Yeah, we've been working on the project for uh, three years. How it got started was uh, I discovered the room like everyone else. Uh, just, you know, a friend told me about it and I ended up downloading it and it was the obviously the worst thing I'd ever seen. So I went to a midnight screening in Ottawa at the Mayfair Theater and um, ended up talking to the theater manager there. And we decided to um, bring Tommy and Greg to Ottawa, which thought it'd be a great idea. So uh, my team and I sponsored the event. I think he was asking for like $1,500 for an appearance, plus whatever, uh, you know, box office arrangements that they had. So we just put half of that down and uh, brought Tommy and Greg to Ottawa. And uh, from there, things just sort of took off. We know we really got along well with Greg. And Tommy Wiseau was uh, just as crazy as I had thought he was going to be. But he, for some reason, really took a liking to me. So we ended up touring with them just a little bit. You know, we went to Toronto. And uh, when we were in Toronto, I decided that, you know what, we have to do something with this guy. He's so interesting. And, you know, at that time, I thought that the room was pretty much peaking, you know, so I figured, why don't I just uh, just pitch something to him, whether it be a reality show or a movie or or a documentary. So I didn't only want to document Tommy, but I want to document like the whole phenomenon and maybe even introduce the room to, a, you know, a new crowd of people who weren't necessarily aware of how amazing this movie was. It's a hard sell sometimes, you know, when you to tell someone you want to watch this movie, it's absolutely horrible. But maybe if there was another way to introduce that to somebody by saying, look at this documentary and see why people all over America and and now all over the world are going crazy about this movie. And then maybe, you know, we could uh, bring in a new audience and and help the room stay alive. So that's how I pitched it to him. And he loved the idea. So uh, from there, we went to New York with them and uh, started filming the documentary. That's awesome because... 
you know, when you told me about the project, I was like, how is there not a documentary about the room yet? It just felt like this missing gap because it was such a huge phenomenon when it hit. I don't even, it's one of those things where I can't even remember how I came across it in the first place. I know it was word of mouth, but I can't remember who turned me on to it. And like when I sat down and watched it, you know, I, I didn't have the experience of like a screening. Like I know the screenings get like real crazy with people like throwing stuff and having things that they recite. So I, I was watching it just by myself, just on my computer. And it hit that great, you know, unintentional comedy beat of, I, you know, I'm watching this transpire and I can't tell if this is somebody who's fully aware of what they're making and making it in a funny, intentionally funny way. Um, or if it's just this perfect, you know, outsider art uh, example. It, it, it just, there's something about the movie and the way that it flows, like the crescendos of like the sex scenes and the music and stuff like that. And there's really nothing like it. You know, there aren't really many comparisons you can make to, you know, film that's taken seriously or other movies like Birdemic or anything like that. It's, it's such a singular uh, work. When did you first see it, Jenna? Do you remember? Yeah, I remember reading articles about it before I ever got to see it. I remember reading all these articles about comedians who kept going to see it in L.A. and were like falling in love with it, like David Cross and Paul Rudd. And I was like, man, this sounds like the coolest. And then um, it was like the night the night before April 1st. And I was like about to go to bed and it just hit. It struck midnight. And on the television, this like dark you know, titles come up. And I remember thinking, like, I was about to go to sleep, and I was like, wait, what the hell is this, you know? And oh, that it, it was flashed. what ran on Adult Swim, It was on right? Adult Swim, yeah. and it flashed the room, and I was like, oh, I, I have to stay awake for this. <laughs> and I remember just, I was laughing hysterically, and then I just fell asleep in the middle of it. <laughs> but I've seen it since. I've been to a couple of screenings. I've been to, actually, I went to one in San Francisco with um, Greg, um, uh, you know, oh, hi, Mark, as he's known otherwise. Sestero, right? Yeah, yeah. And he was he was really cool. I, you know, I, I was, and there's such a mystique behind it. It's so great that there's a documentary because I think that's the, the main thing of, of the room is just how, why, what, who, you know. Yeah, you, after you watch it, you're kind of left reeling where you're like, okay, how did this come to be? And what, what was your exploration of that like? You know, when did you start like really wondering about the process of it, of how they made this movie and why and. Um, I think it was probably after meeting Tommy because I had the same questions as everybody else. You know, you're watching this. You're like, wait a minute. Did he do this on purpose? Like, how could somebody take this project seriously? You know, the dialogue doesn't make any sense. There's a lot of, uh, of plot points that are explored, but they are introduced, I should say, but never explored. Tommy's in every scene, yet he's the worst actor I've ever seen in my life. So, you know, you're like, how can someone take this seriously? You start reading, you know, some of the message boards and then the, and, and, uh, the Wikipedias and stuff. And it says things like uh, how Tommy submitted this movie to the Academy Awards, how he showed up in a limo and a red carpet. And he hired all these fake people to sign autographs uh, when, when he showed up and everything to, to sort of create a buzz, you know. And, um, and you start thinking, like, did he orchestrate everything? Like, is he that smart? So after meeting him, it was pretty clear that... Tommy truly thinks this movie is a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. I've uh, he never really sits through the entire movie. I think it, on some level, it might be too painful for him to, because at the end of the day, everyone's laughing at his at what he believes is a masterpiece. But uh, just as a you know, a small example, his suicide scene at the end. I've watched that scene with him before, and uh, and he he gets emotional during it. 
you know, you can tell that he's watching this and he's thinking like, this is my masterpiece. I don't know why people love it, mm. but, uh, but there's, there's something really genuine about it. And then I thought, you know what? I, I have to explore this. I have to meet everyone who was involved in this project on any level whatsoever and see what their take is on it. Now, I think that you, you sort of touched upon something. So that the best description of the room that I've ever read was on IMDb, and it was a, a one-star comment review. And it summed up the, the movie as, it was as, it was as if a deer made a movie about human interaction, unable to comprehend what it is to be a human being. So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I thought the that... surface sounds so insulting, but it's kind of like a... You know, there's something, there's respect to it as well. See, but that's the thing. So what, what is it about the room that makes it so compelling? I mean, is it, are we laughing at the ineptitude as this comment claims? Or, or I wonder if we're laughing at maybe something a bit larger, that almost otherworldly perspective that we get of sort of, you know, what, what movies are. And, and right, the alien quality to it. Yeah. He is kind of like an alien, like just his vibe. You know, it's hard to describe him as a human. <laughs> it, it really is. And, uh, and of course, what adds to the mystery is that he doesn't want to, you know, tell anybody where he's from. So you can only assume, you know, he, he has made claims that he's a vampire and I've seen him firsthand. He, he doesn't sleep at night. He stays up all night, sleeps all day. So there's, there's that aspect of it that's really weird. Uh, also, I think, you know, uh, the reason people laugh at the movie is because... There was actual effort behind it. Anybody can grab a camera and make a bad movie. But it's when true, somebody yeah. spends so much money, tries so hard, and the, he introduces elements like uh, like football, for example, and you can tell there's so much football in the movie because he's trying so hard to be American. Mm -hmm. You know, so no one knows where he's from, but there is that, that alien factor. It's almost like, and I've thought about this question before, and I thought to myself, okay, if I were to try to make a movie to, that mimics Japanese culture, Okay, I watch a lot of, if I were to watch a lot of Japanese movies and say, okay, well, let me try to, to just emulate this. You know, I have a little bit of money here. I'm going to move to Japan because that's what I've always wanted to do. Let me try to make a movie that's going to appeal to their culture. I put six million bucks into it and I introduce all these elements that seem Japanese to me. You know, okay, people are going to eat with chopsticks and they're going to, they're going to do what, what I think is Japanese. And then the, the Japanese people just eat it all up and they love it. You think, wow, I just made a great Japanese movie and you don't understand why they love it. You start reading reviews and say, well, wait, what do you mean? My movie's bad, but all these people are coming to my film, so they must love it on some level. So I think it's just something really genuine about it and there was true effort there. And when the audience watches the movie, we can see that. It, it, it pierces through. However horrible the movie is, there's something really genuine at its core. Right. You know, people describe it as unintentional comedy, but I think a better description is it's really unintentional satire. You know, the choices that he's making, as you pointed out, with like the football and the, his use of music and the opening titles and everything, it's, um, you know, he's trying to approximate uh, a particular type of cinema and the notes that he's hitting with it you know, if somebody had set out to make a satirical film about cliche cinema tropes, um, they would probably hit those same notes if they were going about it in the right way. So talk to me about uh, some of the interviews that you, uh, you, you've done so far for the film. What have, you, what have you learned that really stuck out for you? One of the, uh, the first really interesting interviews that we did was with a gentleman uh, named Sandy Chaclair. Now, if you don't know who Sandy Chaclair is, he was credited as a script supervisor on the film. He has some funny stories how, you know, originally Tommy tried to hire him for 75 bucks a day. And this is a respected filmmaker in L.A. So uh, he told him, he's like, you know what, um, time's up by 10 and we can start talking. <laughs> so 
Tommy obviously didn't know what the hell he was doing. This was uh, he was just some rich foreigner, had a lot of money. He's like, I want to make an American movie. So he you know, assembled a cast and assembled a crew, got everyone together and did not know what he was doing. So Sandy told me that uh, he asked him, he's like, OK, well, uh, so um, who's directing this thing? So he says, well, uh, I am director. So he says, okay, but you're in every scene, so you're going to be able to direct yourself as a first-time project. Yes, yes, I am director, I am producer. He's, he's you know, if, if you know anything about Tommy, when you're in his world, he is everything. Whether right. you're selling merch, whether you're uh, ordering food at the, at a diner, like, it's all about Tommy all the time. So, of course, this is, he wrote this project, he's producing this project, he's directing it. He doesn't know what the hell a director does, but he's directing it. Sandy Chaclair had put in a claim, I believe it was with... Um, Variety magazine that um, he was the actual director of the room. He said, mm-hmm. I directed every scene except for the sex scenes. And he's like, and that was just out of principle because there's some controversy there about uh, Juliet Danielle's age at the time and so on. So he says that he directed every single scene. So that was, uh, that was a very interesting interview. He, he gave some, uh, some, some good insight. And my conclusion was in the end that Sandy Chaclair had in fact directed the vast majority of the film. Mm. We met with some of the actors also. Of course, the movie's not completed yet, but uh, we met with uh, uh, Robin Osborne, who played Michelle, and she had some interesting stories also. Uh, we met with uh, Dan Jangigian, Dan Jigian, sorry, who played uh, Chris R. So we went uh, to Austin, Texas to meet with him, and, and he had some, uh, some great stories also. I, of course, I can't give uh, too much away because it's all going to be in the film, right? Also met with a lot of fans. It was really nice to see how passionate people are. And it's, it's kind of crazy to think that there are even bigger fans than me out there. None crazy enough to uh, assemble a whole crew and, and hit the sure, road for yeah. a couple months, you know. But uh, I've spoken to people who've seen the movie, you know, over a hundred times. Why Why do you think that this movie's inspired uh, that sort of Rocky horror? Like, uh, you know, everyone wants to be part of this movie. Yeah, the, the participation aspect, yeah. Yeah, what is it about this movie? Is it just that earnest quality to it that everyone just wants to try just as hard in some way? Yeah, because there's a lot of bad movies that are you know, celebrated out there, but not all of them have that participation aspect. You know, what was your firsthand experience with that? Do you like, what do you think it is about the movie that um, attracts that? That's a very good question. I think that everybody feels as though on some level they discovered the room. You can watch the room on your own and then Jenna, you can watch the movie alone and you'll both see it different ways or you'll both discover different things about it. There's something to be said about that, too, because there's so much to find in that movie. Way more than like some movies that I love, that I adore, that I would think are like brilliant five star movies. You know, I don't have that same reaction where I'm constantly finding new things. You know, there's so much to discover in that movie. There are. And I think people really want to share that. And it just happened very organically. If you have, you know, if you have 300 people in a theater and then one person noticed something, I've pointed out things to Greg Sestero that he's never even noticed before. Mm. So you just want to shout it out, you know, why is the TV in front of the couch? Or uh, why is, uh, you know, why, why is this? Or, you know, and then people laugh and you discover more things. You know, no matter how many times you watch the room, you can always find some other, some new element of awfulness in it. So right. people have really broken it down. And it's the same. Just like you said, I, I do the same with five star films. I've watched Magnolia probably 75 times. And it, mm. and it was probably on my 30th time that I noticed all the 82s. 
but um, I, I wouldn't shout that out at a theater or anything like that. But it's just a, <laughs> it's just a, it's almost like a, um, like a support group because you know you're watching something so horrible and you have to justify why you're there. So you know what? Might as well just have fun with it and just scream and throw spoons and and just make a party out of it. Mm. The throwing spoons thing, I like. I wonder how that even originated. That seems sort of a visceral reaction yeah, to yeah. me. <laughs> Someone was like, look at all those spoons. We should bring some spoons. And then you get there and you're like, ah, oh, fuck this. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a story about that in the documentary, as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah? uh, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with uh, Michael Rousselet. He's, um, he's the face of Five Second Films. So they have a pretty big following. Oh, okay. they do all these I know their work, films but and, I didn't know his Right, name. right. So he was credited as uh, the one that discovered how awful the room is and, and kept it alive or gave it a life i should say because it started out in la that's right? right yeah it started in la on one screen and um i think the opening night it made um 1900 bucks or opening weekend 1900 dollars for its first entire run which was just a couple of days so but it had that ridiculous billboard up on uh, hollywood boulevard mm. so michael russelet said that uh he's like yeah i saw the billboard and i just had to see it because you know the guy looked so weird up there you know so he went to see it alone and just couldn't believe what he was seeing so he just got it immediately. You know, he, he was a filmmaker also. So right. he was seen it from a bit of a different perspective and then just started calling his friends and then eventually like filled up the theater. And then they reached out to Tommy and said, would you come to a screening? And uh, so that's how it sort of grew there. And he uh, claims and I believe him because he's he's pretty uh, he, he has deep roots in, in the in the room. And uh, that he started the spoon thing. He said that he was with about a hundred people in the theater, and then uh, he just saw the um, he just saw the pictures with the spoons, and he started yelling spoons, spoons, and that just became <laughs> part of the ritual. And then, of course, eventually people started throwing the plastic spoons. The, you know, the spoons are great, and I, I also I love just the, when people start throwing footballs around. Because number one, that's actually kind of my understanding of how football works. Anyhow, it's just <laughs> <laughs> playing catch, but. Uh, yeah, no, there's something about that movie, man. It's just a, it is a charm. I, I agree. It's, it's, there's such a, sin, a sincere... I wonder if it's a want to be like. Because I feel like, you know, there there is so much ridicule towards this movie, but I wouldn't say that it's a bullying. You know, everyone wants is excited to see Tommy. Everyone wants to know more about who he is. And everyone genuinely loves him, too. Like, right. This, you should see, like, I don't, have you ever been to a screening with uh, with Tommy there? No, I'm... Okay, he's wish. a rock star. Yeah. He's an absolute rock star. He'll show up, uh, you know, in, in a limo or whatever, and there's a lineup <laughs> around the block, and he'll play football with the fans. He has amazing energy. You know, he's always in character, too, you right. know? And sometimes, like, uh, we've been just a couple weeks ago, uh, we were in Toronto, and they were playing at a theater that had five screens, and it was playing on all five screens, and they staggered them by half an hour so we could do a little Q&A and meet the fans and stuff. So... We were there with them for about, I don't know, five hours. And he was just you know, in character and just on fire and just responding to the fans. He absolutely loves it. So people, as much as they ridicule the film, it's not in a harmful way. They genuinely love the film. It makes them happy. Oh, absolutely. You know, and they, they really like Tommy. So, so yeah, so that's, um, that's uh, th- there's something to be said there. I love that also his, essentially his prediction for how great the film is came true, just not in the way he might have intended you know all the success of the film is is there um it's just in a different form than he could have anticipated but you could say that for pretty much any film um i think when you're making a film you have this idea of how it will be received and what its lifespan will be but so much of that just occurs spontaneously after it's you know in the world and you don't really have much control over that 
Yeah, a lot of times it can reach an audience that you didn't necessarily intend to reach, but it can still be loved as much as you intended it to be loved. Hmm. So you said uh, you talked about him being in character at the screenings. Have you ever seen him essentially what you would call out of character? Have you seen him, you know, you know, not on, so to speak? Tommy's a, a horrible actor to begin with. So the mm-hmm. Tommy that you're seeing on screen <laughs> is whether he's acting or not, that is truly him. Okay. He's very emotional. He uh, talks the same way. His mannerisms are the same. And uh, so that truly is Tommy. Now, when Tommy does the Q&As and stuff, he dumbs himself down. He's actually a very intelligent person, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, so he dumbs himself down. He'll go in front of the crowd and he'll, you know, people ask him questions. Where are you from? And he'll say, a two plus two is four. What do you think? And just, just absolutely Right, he's giving nonsense. them what they want. Exactly. They, they just want a buffoon. So he just, he, he's the buffoon. You so know, you've but, had inte- intelligent discussions with him? Oh, absolutely. He's extremely yeah. intelligent. He's uh, a very savvy businessman. He has all types of businesses. Mm. You know, and he owns everything that he touches, he owns. So if he's selling underwear that say Tommy Wiseau, he designed those underwear. He probably owns the factory in China. He owns the the the, the company that imported them and he's warehousing them in a building he owns. Wow. That's Tommy Wiseau. That's absolutely impressive. Yeah, so I've had uh, I've had lots of conversations with him. He's uh he's a, a genuine guy. He absolutely like truly loves his fans and um and yeah, like I said, there's not a major difference between him on screen and him in reality, but uh, he's he's not as goofy as he portrays himself to his fans sometimes. Right. I heard a rumor that he had kept everybody um, who was working in that movie, every single actor on set every single day. Absolutely. Yeah? There are some people who only had two scenes in the entire movie. They said, I worked a day and a half, but he wanted them every, they wanted them there every day. And if they didn't show up, they were unprofessional and he'd leave them voicemails and say, where are you? Where are you? He just wanted them to hang around. So, uh, so yeah, so there was uh, some actors, as a matter of fact, who quit because of that. They're like, well, I have other commitments. I'm, I'm an actor here. This is a nice gig. Thanks for the paycheck. But uh, my scenes are done, you know, so and he just wanted them to stick around for uh, the three months or however the hell long it took to shoot that movie. That sounds like Lars von Trier to me, because that's kind of like the Dogville thing when Lars von Trier did Dogville. That whole concept of that movie was in, was in like a huge warehouse and there were, it was essentially a play, uh, a filmed play. And um, there were no walls on any of the houses. Everything was delineated with um, chalk outlines on the ground. And so if you weren't in a particular scene that taking place in one of the, villi- the village houses of Dogville, you still had to be in your house far down along in the warehouse just doing your day-to-day stuff. And maybe you're in the shot in like way in the background or maybe you're not even in the shot at all but he wanted everybody there at all times doing what they would be doing if they weren't even in the shot so it's interesting that he asked for that because that's a you know Lars Venture is a very respected filmmaker who essentially wanted the exact same thing I don't think the intention was the same, though. Yeah. <laughs> Lars von Trier is, uh, is, is a genius filmmaker and Tommy Wiseau is uh, not Right, but so, the the impulse, I would say. Well, I wonder yeah. if it's a. It sounds like it's a control thing, you yeah. know. It definitely, and I mean, I guess there is sort of a. You can call that stupidity, or you can say that he's, you know, he has all the pieces. You know, he can move them as he wants. Then in the end, he kind of wins. So. Mm. And also, uh, Tommy, I don't think had any real idea of what he was doing. So I think he would show up on set. There was no script for the room. 
everyone I spoke to said, no, we never received a script. We get a couple scribbled lines down on mm. a paper one day and you say, okay, this is what we're shooting today. So I think... Well, that's on- like Woody Allen. <laughs> that's a very Woody Allen thing. He would only ever give people whatever their lines were and very few would ever get the entire script. I think the Tommy's logic for having everybody there is because he didn't know what he was going to shoot that day. Mm. So well, that's that's a lecture I would I wish I would have had on a lot of stuff that I've done. You know, you never know what you're really going to shoot in a given day. You know, you might think you do, but you never really know. Mm-hmm. So I, I like I kind of have respect for those idiosyncratic uh, filmmaker aspects of him because I I can kind of see the logic. A lot of stuff that people associate with like uh, you know demanding auteurs that uh, you want a lot of control. A lot of it comes down to just basic like. No, this is what would make sense most of all. Like, there's always that whole thing about, um, I think it's Van Halen where they have when they're writer about how they need like only green M&Ms or something like in a bowl right. behind the uh, waiting, the dressing rooms and all that. And that was always like the example of like the craziest possible thing that people could ask for and how, oh, how crazy these like egotistical stars are. But then you find out the actual reason and it's because, no, one of these people almost got electrocuted and almost died um, because somebody there was like a malfunction because somebody didn't check out like the electricals on one of the performances, and so they put that in their rider to make sure every tiny little thing is done according to how it's supposed to be done for everybody's safety. Because they figure if somebody doesn't do the green M and M thing, if somebody doesn't catch that in the rider, mm-hmm. they might have caught not caught something that could have killed somebody. So there's always those little things where like. When you learn like the full story and realize, you know, there are a lot of common sense reasons for, you know, not knowing what you're going to shoot on a given day, only giving people certain sides. You know, I have hearing that about him. I have a lot more respect for him. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting that you mentioned that, actually, because there's a lot about Tommy that we don't know and a lot that he doesn't explain. So I think it's a natural reaction to sort of make a mockery of it, mm. you know, but... That said, he's been very successful and he's been very successful for a long, not only in this movie, but for a very long time. He's uh, he's extremely wealthy and uh, he has all types of successful businesses. So at the end of the day, it's it's easy for me to judge what he's doing, but it's working for him. Yeah, he's he's laughing last, essentially. How many movies has he uh, seen? You know, like what is this? Is Tommy a cinephile or is this just his own world? Tommy's definitely in his own world. I don't think he's seen uh, a whole lot of movies because whenever we talk about something current, he never seems to be aware of what I'm talking about. There's a video on YouTube where uh, Justin Long shows up for one of the screenings and uh, gets to meet him and stuff. And uh, so he says, oh, hey, Tommy, I'm a big fan of your movies. And he's like, oh, I'm a fan of you, too. So he says, oh, yeah, which movies of mine have you seen? He's like, the last one. He didn't even know who Justin Long was. (laughs) So whenever he talks about movies, he'll reference uh, Citizen Kane, Cleopatra, and... um, that's about it. He really lives in the room, so I don't think he's trying to mimic anyone's style. Right. Uh, I'm told he's a huge fan of Clint Eastwood, and uh, but I really don't think he's trying to uh, emulate any type of director style. Uh, any everything that he does is very organic, and is uh, it's just how he sees a big Hollywood director. Sure. So he's taken act as if to an absolute extreme, where this has become who he truly is now. Mm. I think there is something to be said for act as if like when we even started getting the site smug film up, I didn't have much experience writing about film. I'd written like one or two pieces, uh, Greg the same. And Jenna, even when you started, you didn't really have any experience, but like 
there was just something about the energy where it was just like committing to finishing something and committing to like writing one piece a week. You get into the groove of it and at first it's daunting, you know, at first it's like you're spending way too long on a piece cranking it out and making it perfect. And then it it becomes a thing where like if I have like I have to have a piece up in like two hours, I can crank something out. And I know that it's going to be good. Like it becomes just a second nature because I've written like maybe 80 something pieces for the site in the last year. It's great to have it become like a muscle memory Mm -hmm. aspect. And I think, you know, when you're directing a film, a lot of times you just got to take the plunge. And I I respect him for that. You know, that's something that a lot of first time filmmakers, you know, you just got to you have to start sometime. You got to you have to have your first day on set at some point. And it might as well be you just take the plunge and do it you know you're never going to be as ready as you think you need to be but do you think that this was a passion project for tommy or do you think that this was maybe another business venture this was definitely a passion project yeah he had uh before the room was even a screenplay or considered to be a movie it was originally going to be a book so tommy says he has i believe it's six a six or eight hundred page book of the room that he wrote (laughs) and then he converted that book to a stage play and then uh, he decided to make a big Hollywood production out of it. So it was definitely a passion project. It's a very personal story. Also, um, his character Johnny is, in my opinion, Tommy in real life. I'm pretty sure that that exact story did happen to him. That he did suffer a pretty serious heartbreak. And this, uh, and, and making this movie and becoming successful was his uh, his, his sort of fuck you to his ex or to whoever did this to him in real life and you really felt betrayed and uh and i even see some of that come through in his personality and in, in, in the way that he is because he uh tommy and uh and i don't mean this disrespectfully but this is the way that he chooses to be uh has no friends whatsoever he has uh, no one in his life um his uh, best friend is, uh, is Greg Sestero, who he to- tours with, and uh, and I, he makes friends, you know, on tour, fans and stuff like that. Uh, he's very protective, um, borderline paranoid, because uh, a lot of people that he's met have tried to take advantage of him, trying to pitch ideas to him, or everyone sort of wants something from him. So, uh, so, so, but I feel that there's uh, th- there's some really deep rooted pain there also, and uh, and the, the room is. I believe it was his way of painting a picture of what he went through. To bring it back to something you mentioned briefly earlier about his affinity for Citizen Kane, it, it strikes me as so funny because there's a complaint that I always make about whenever you like ask like uh, you know big time filmmaker like what their favorite films are, that canned response of like Citizen Kane or Casablanca or Godfather. Like whenever you look on Rotten Tomatoes and you see like the five favorite films from like certain directors, some of them like pick like nice ones that are a little idiosyncratic that wouldn't necessarily get picked but whenever you see the ones where it's like somebody just listing godfather godfather 2 citizen kane goodfellas and like one other it's like why even list them in the first place so you know that that part of tommy you know is like a lot of these directors that are so cagey about their influences we don't want to know about like the ones everybody knows we want to know about like the deep cuts you know we want to know like I learned just the other day that James Cameron loves the movie Resident Evil, wow. and I would have never known that. And he he admitted it to it on uh, one of those Reddit Ask Me Anything things. Somebody asked him like, "What's like a weird movie or something off the beaten path that you actually like really dig?" He's like, "I I be the first to admit I love the movie Resident Evil. It just works for me." And that's the kind of thing you really want to hear 
you know, it's a shame that uh, people can be so cagey about that sort of thing. And it's also unfortunate that I, I really don't think that he spends any time watching any of these movies also. So mm. it's, it, I think his answer is pretty genuine when he says Casablanca and uh, and Citizen Kane. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> really I, is. I think those are some of the only movies that he has seen. Exactly. In his case, I can believe it. But with like some big time director, it's like, come on, guy, you're mm. watching movies all the time. We know it. <laughs> right. See, to, to further compare the room, though, it almost the, the way that it's shot, it, it makes sense that it was a stage play, like you said, or at least at one point, because it has that like raisin in the sun. You know, it's always the same room, like mm, from a yeah. different angle. So then, you know, I almost wonder if, if like we can keep finding these sort of parallels with these more famous movies and directors and he, you know, hasn't seen them or, you know, at least it seems like he hasn't. Maybe he just he like hit the formula like he like that's yeah. that's where the otherworldly comes into a lot it. of his idiosyncrasies they pretty much line up with a lot of big directors. I mean, like I love Vincent Gallo to the day I die. Like his movies absolutely influenced me wanting to make them and feeling the impulse to have the control that I felt like I needed in order to make something right to to get it to the right place. Like you know the fact that he. He did like even he did the makeup on Buffalo 66. He did pretty much everything. And, um, you know, I, I love him so much. But, you know, he's kind of like Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> like he's not he's not that dissimilar. So Tommy Wiseau isn't really that far off from a lot of these guys. He's every man. <laughs> we are all Tommy Wiseau. We are all Tommy. I think that's what we've learned. So the book that Greg Sestero came out with, like, I guess a year ago now, um, that did extraordinarily well. Like that was very well reviewed. Everybody really dug that. Um, so that's kind of like it's almost like the room dipped a little bit. Now it's got this resurgence because of that book. People are re-remembering how awesome it is. Did you read that book? Did you dig it? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I read it and loved it. It's it's kind of cool too. I, I almost feel like I'm a I'm a part of that book a little bit because uh, I remember when I first met Greg is when he started talking about making this book. He's like, you know, Rick, I'm, I'm thinking of writing a book about my experience, uh, you know, touring with Tommy and, and, and making this movie and stuff. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's a really cool idea. And at the time, he was thinking of calling it uh, Trapped in the Room. And I was like, yeah, that's a great title. I secretly didn't like it very much. But uh, mm. but I was like, that, that's a really great title, man. Yeah, you should do it. You know, and I, was, I kept getting updates. And every time something was happening, and he'd shoot me an email or a text. And, you know, and then um, when it got um, distribution, you know, I, I was one of, oh, I think I was one of the first people to find that out, you know. And, and then all the success that's come since. It's uh, it's a fantastic book. He, he really gets into the nitty gritty of his relationship with Tommy which is uh, interesting and uh, at times disturbing. And then the making of the room, of course, has some really wonderful stories in there too. So it's, uh, I, I thought it was pretty amazing that, uh, I'm not sure you guys are aware, it's being uh, turned into a Hollywood film. So oh the, yeah, something with James Franco attached, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. so James Franco was optioned by uh, James Franco and uh, Seth Rogen's production company. So, uh, so, so yeah, so it's going to be a really interesting project. It was, it's cool to have been there when this was just uh, an idea, and now it's turning into this potentially huge Hollywood film, and to see Greg Sestero's success like that. Well-deserved, too, because it's got to be really hard to, to tour with Tommy for 10 years and put up <laughs> with fans saying, oh, hi, Mark. I, I, I get fed up of it when I, uh, when I go to screenings with them after about 20 minutes of it. I couldn't imagine 10 years yeah. of hanging out with Tommy and, 
and you know the fans asking the same ridiculous questions and stuff like that so uh he i really feel he's gonna deserve any success that comes out of this wonderful yeah he seems like a good guy too greg's an amazing guy yeah yeah just heart of gold and uh super genuine just uh you know a, a nice like a, a true like friend you know he's just a very very friendly guy like he'll, he'll call me on my birthday like to, to say happy birthday things like that you yeah, know yeah, yeah yeah when i saw him at a screening it was back in it was san francisco at the red vic theater which i don't think exists anymore unfortunately but uh, I, re- I was struck by just how normal and genuinely friendly he was. I kind of expected, I mean, you know, and I, you know, you know, he's an actor, but you kind of don't can't tell who's acting and who isn't in that movie. So I sort of expected him to be a sort of like misogynistic, jerky, you know, cocky kind of guy. And he was so down to earth. He was so friendly. And uh, he was handing out these like little posters of him in like a speedo for everybody and then signing them, which was like, you know, also just funny. And, and you know, I just remember telling him like, hey, you know, it's great to know you're a really normal guy. He was like, thanks. <laughs> the first time that I noticed that how normal Greg really was, was um, when we brought him to Ottawa. Of course, like, I'm a little starstruck and I don't really know these guys and whatever. So I'm not walking on eggshells, but I'm careful around them. Right. So we go to set up at the Mayfair for um, for one of the for the first screening. So we're just setting up the merch table and, and things like that. And then we're discussing, OK, well, the fans should come in through here. But Tommy had to take control of that whole situation. He said, no, no, no. Over here, we have to put out a red carpet. We only open this door. We put the merch table here. The fans come in here. They only get autographs if they purchase something. They must go out there. And for God's sake, Tom Cruise would not put up with this. So I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking to myself, he almost had me convinced. I'm like, yeah, fuck, he's right. Tom Cruise wouldn't put up with this. And then Greg takes me aside. And he's like, are we forgetting that this is the worst fucking movie ever made? <laughs> and that's when I realized that, that Greg Sestero was uh, a pretty cool guy. So it seems like there's kind of a balance between the two where uh, Greg kind of keeps him in check, so to speak. Like, uh, it's, he, he's almost like his, uh, his proxy into like the real world of human beings. You know? <laughs> Someone referred to him as, uh, as the Tommy Whisperer. <laughs> and it's, it's pretty perfect, funny yeah. there's no better way of describing it because tommy is visibly uncomfortable when greg's not around mm. so and i've seen um and and i don't want to give everything away but i've seen tommy freak out before i've seen him absolutely lose his shit and you know and then greg will just go and talk to him and everything's back to normal after you know so uh so yeah it will be hard for tommy wiseau to go to these screenings and and just sort of be himself without Greg there to balance him out, I feel. Is that maybe why um, Greg's the only one touring, I guess, that all these other... I, see, that I'm so interested in this documentary because I really want to know more about the other actors and the other people involved because you don't really hear so much about them. But maybe it's just because they don't want to be near Tommy. Um, that's definitely one aspect of it. But you have to keep in mind that... Uh, Greg and Tommy were friends before the room. They met in acting class. So they already had that foundation and then they found success together. And uh, so I think Tommy sort of feels that he has um, a responsibility towards Greg, maybe in, in a weird way. You know, he just sees him as maybe like a little brother or something like that. Like, oh, I just took you from San Francisco and I moved you to L.A. and I made you what you are today type of thing. You know, so he feels... Definitely feels that he deserves credit, but also feels like a responsibility towards Greg. And as much as they are an odd couple, they are best friends. They're absolutely best friends. You know, it's it's hard to explain their friendship, you know, and and, um, and I feel sometimes that Greg might, uh, in a weird way, feel embarrassed by Tommy, 
which which sucks. I mean, that's that's it's kind of harsh to be embarrassed by your best friend. But I mean, he's he's a hard person to to explain. You know, we've mm. been out to restaurants and he'll tip five percent. He uh, he he wears his sunglasses all the time. We. We've been in an elevator with him once and we're on the 40th floor and we stop on the 16th and he tells the lady she can't come in the elevator because we're in a meeting right now. <laughs> like he's, he's a very hard, uh, he's hard to deal with. But I think Greg's really uh, mastered that. And in touring together and in finding success together, I mean, they, they've developed a very, very strong bond and a, and a really uh, genuine friendship. That's beautiful. Yeah. I'm glad that there's uh, that that sort of thing has blossomed from it, you know, because a lot of these uh, let's not even call them bad movies, but uh, unintentionally amazing, uh, w- w- you know, whatever we would call them, you know. There's been like I remember. Did you ever see that movie Samurai Cop? I've heard of it. No, I haven't yeah, seen it. There's this. It's kind of like this guy who's kind of like got like a ape drape. It's called Samurai Cop, but there's really like no samurai in it whatsoever, and. Um, he nobody knows where this guy is but he's this he's he was the main guy in the movie and everybody loves him and everybody loves that crazy crappy movie but nobody's been able to find him whatsoever because he's completely distanced himself from the entire production and hasn't you know accepted the fact that you know maybe it was set out to be one thing but it's become this beautiful other thing and it's great to see a group of people really embracing uh what it's become like i to Tommy's credit, he's embraced the reality of the film and uh, what the film has become. And, you know, the film has its own life and he's accepted that. And so is Greg. And that's a wonderful thing. You know, the, the Troll 2 people would be a good example, too. Of mm-hmm. Like um, a couple of those guys really, you know, they're like, yeah, it's, you know, it's we didn't really like it at the time, but watching it with these new eyes, it's kind of cool. Yeah, we actually uh, met with uh, George Hardy from Troll 2. And uh, like you said, he's obviously really embraced the movie and, and has fun with it. And he's enjoying the little fame that he has with it, you know. And, and uh, so we went down to Alabama, spent a couple of days with him and did a few interviews with him. And he's a, he's a great guy. So that's, that's a great example. Uh, recently, also, um, funny that you were just talking about uh, people distancing themselves from the project. Obviously, I've been un- unsuccessful in reaching certain people, especially crew. Uh, cast is one thing. I mean, you can't hide who you are, right? You can't hide your face. So if you're going to go to a casting call or something like that or an audition, they're going to know you were in the room hmm. unless they, you know, unless they didn't do the research or whatever. They're going to know you're in the room. Now, if you're a camera operator, uh, for example, that's a little bit harder though, because so there's more incentive to distance yourself from the room because, you know, when the shots are set up horribly, everything's going out of focus. You you don't want to be associated with that. There's nothing funny about that. That's your job. You're a camera operator. Right. It's might, not going to help you out. It's not going to help you whatsoever. But they may not have worked in the film grammar way that we're used to, but they worked in a, a humor way and an enjoyment way. Yeah. One of the questions that I ask when I interview fans is, would you consider would you truly consider this the worst movie ever made or would you consider it the best movie ever made and it's a bit of a weird question but then when you think of it this way like citizen kane is probably you know widely respected as the best piece of uh, film ever made okay but how many times have you seen citizen kane you may right. have watched it twice exactly. may have watched it three times 
You know, so there's something to be said. How can you call this the worst movie ever made if you're going to keep going back every month to see it? There's there's almost something a little bit addicting about it. You know, you, you have to go. I, I remember a story that I tell in the documentary is how when I first discovered it in theaters, it's one thing to watch it at home and go see it in theaters, whole different experience. And everyone bailed on me one night and it was really shitty weather. It was like freezing rain or, or something like that. And of course, you know, I'm going to see it at a one screen theater. So there's a lineup around the block waiting for the first movie then i'm standing outside the theater in line alone thinking to myself what the fuck am i doing with my life right now i've already seen this movie four <laughs> times why am i freezing my ass outside alone holding a bag of spoons like a jerk off so you know see so you have to think like i, I wouldn't do that for citizen kane probably my favorite exactly. movie is magnolia I, I would not do that for magnolia so it's it's hard to call it the worst movie ever made if you're going to go to such an extent to uh to, to watch it we're going to take a break real quick we'll come back with some questions and uh stick around what's that sound mean it means it's dvd giveaway time we're giving away five free copies of the room on dvd to five listeners all you have to do to qualify is go on Twitter and follow us at Smug Film and Rick Harper at Room Full of Spoon. That's Spoon, singular. Then, just tweet your thoughts about this episode, mentioning both those Twitter handles in your tweet, and that's it. It's that easy. Winners will be contacted on May 12th, so you have exactly one week from the day this podcast went up to do this. Do not pass up this opportunity to own, for free, one of the most rewatchable cheesy movies of all time. Thank you for listening, and now back to the show. First question is from Emily, and she says, talk about me. Hey, Emily. Emily. <laughs> Emily's a friend of yours, right? Yeah. I, I do not know this woman, so talk <laughs> about her. Um, she lives in the Midwest and she has good taste in music. <laughs> what music does she like? Uh, recently she told me that she heard Department of Eagles in a bar and I was very happy about that because I just went to a concert for Daniel Rosen. All right. I don't know any way to relate Anything that else to movies. About it? What color hair does she have? Brown. Is she tall, skinny, short, what? I've never met her. No internet her. friends. <laughs> oh. Does she like movies? I hope so. She better. This is a movie podcast. <laughs> yeah. All right. That question's done. Question answered. Question two. Katie asks, can you talk about Eternal Sunshine, The Spotless Mind, and how it's the worst movie ever made? Yeah, that's bull. It's it's not the worst movie ever made. It's a great movie. You like that one, Rick? I love Eternal Sunshine. Yeah. That was a fantastic movie. Nice score, too. Yeah. yeah. It's great. Here's what I will say, though. You know, I'll throw, I'll throw Katie a bone. I do feel... That part of why Scott Pilgrim is so good is because it kind of usurped uh, Eternal Sunshine in small ways. It's kind of similar, but it's more fun. Eternal Sunshine is a great movie. I don't know that it's the most fun movie. Scott Pilgrim, like we were talking before, like the movie that you can watch a lot, sometimes that's the good movie. You kind of have to throw the bone in that sense. And Scott Pilgrim, I've seen like five times, Eternal Sunshine, maybe twice, because it's not a movie I want to watch all the time. And for those two movies to have a similar premise of like chasing this girl who keeps changing her hair and all that stuff, I like Scott Pilgrim better. So that's the bone that I'm throwing Katie in that regard. But you can't just throw all depressing movies under the bus. Sure I can. I just did. (laughs) We're trying to please our fans here. Yeah, I guess. I can't come out and say it's a bad movie, but I can say that I prefer Scott Pilgrim and they are similar. 
Um, I wasn't crazy about Kate Winslet in Eternal Sunshine. I kind of thought good riddance. Good riddance? Yeah. Did she pass away? Well, you know, he forgets her. Oh, right. That's true. Or does he? Dun, dun, dun. Eternal dun, dun. Sunshine 2. All right. Third question. <laughs> <laughs> Matt wants to know about some cheese ball thrillers that he could watch on the airplane. Matt, uh, if you can come across this made-for-TV movie starring Tori Spelling called Mommy, Can I Sleep with Danger? You're in for a treat. Is that a good one? No, it's a horrible one, but it's a real <laughs> cheese ball thriller. When did so that come out? That. It was made for TV. I think I saw it uh, mid-90s when uh, Tori Spelling was pretty much in every made-for-TV movie. Mm. So it's a horrible title. I think the title speaks for itself. So if you can find that online or, or wherever, that's uh, it's a fantastic cheese ball thriller. All right, Matt. How about you? You got a suggestion for him? I don't know. I, I, movies that I watch on planes tend to be either movies that you're forced to watch because there's only one screen and you didn't pay enough money, or just like like I was like I saw John Carter on a, on a plane with no sound, and I remember thinking that's fine. You know, <laughs> I don't need to know more. Right, I don't know. Right. I'd say something like you know something like Pacific Rim or Fast and Furious Six. Those are good, like plain, take your mind off. I feel of. like that would give me, like, make me sick. Like, just all that movement plus the plane. I don't know. Um, if he, you know, if he's watching these on his laptop and he has access to everything, there's this movie called uh, Pacific Heights with Michael Keaton, where he's like this asshole neighbor, like in an apartment, and he doesn't like these people that just moved in. And so he's trying to get them kicked out or to get them, like, just out of the building. And there's, like, this stuff where, like, he puts, like, cockroaches in their apartment. And he's just, like, this weird, sadistic guy. It's a terrible movie. It's totally cheeseball and very much a thriller. And it's just worth watching because it's Michael Keaton. So you can watch him do anything. He's going to be pretty good at it. What about Joe's apartment? You guys ever see oh, I that? I love Joe's apartment. I was just thinking of Joe's apartment. Underrated. The cockroaches. Yeah. Watch oh, that. Yeah. The best cockroach movie, I would say. Agreed. Joe's apartment. Have you guys ever seen The Big Hit? No. The big hit's a guilty pleasure of mine. It's with uh, Mark Wahlberg and Bukim Woodbine. I do Woodbine remember that, yeah. And uh, Christina Applegate. That's a real, uh, I don't know if I categorize it as a thriller, but it's a good cheeseball B-movie. I, I consider it the best B-movie ever made. And there's a funny parallel between the big hit and the room because one of the uh, one of the underlying stories is this uh, eccentric billionaire who makes the the most expensive movie ever made and he self-finances it and he stars in it and directs it and uh i think he even uh when he brings it to movie theaters he has a big gold statue to promote it and of course the movie flops and he goes broke because of it but that's uh so yeah so check out the big hit yeah i i vaguely isn't there something where he uh, like jumps out of a window of a building or something and he's like strapped to like a harness or I remember that in like the trailer almost, like some big leap or I don't know. There's a lot going on in there. Yeah. That was Honeymoon in Vegas, maybe. Maybe. All right. So I guess that's it. We we pretty much knocked those questions out. Anything else we can say about Emily? Is there anything else about her? Uh, I think she has a lip ring. All right. Theater of the mind. People can imagine a lip ring in this person's <laughs> mouth. All right. So um, the movie, when can we expect to see it? Uh, we should wrap the actual shoot by uh, our, our deadline is June 1st, and then we send everything for editing. And uh, so we're hopefully, hoping to have it out by the end of 2014. That's our goal, anyways. If you want to find out more about the project, uh, you can follow us on Twitter. It's at Roomful of Spoon. There wasn't enough character to put the uh, the S there, so room, <laughs> at Roomful of Spoon on Twitter. Uh, Instagram, Roomful of Spoons, uh, RoomfulofSpoons.com. 
And uh, also feel free to just reach out to me. I'm uh, Rick at RockhavenPictures.com. If you have any questions or, or anything that uh, you want to know about the room that maybe I should put into the documentary or, or just uh, just want to reach out to Rick at RockhavenPictures.com. And yeah, we'll put that all up on the post when this goes up. It's good to have you, man. You got to come back and, you know, talk about more different types of movies. You, we should bring you into the fold and talk about everything. So drive down from Canada again and we'll, <laughs> we'll do that again. Yeah. Excellent. It was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah. Jenna, any parting words? Great meeting you. I'm so excited for this documentary. I really am. It sounds awesome. All right. Rick, any parting words? Um, if you haven't seen The Room, I mean, check <laughs> it out. <laughs> Let's hope they see that before they listen to this podcast because I think they'll understand what we're talking about a bit more. And my parting words is... Uh, subscribe, comment, rate us. It helps people know we exist. Uh, thank you all for listening and see you soon. <laughs>